One of the things that he wanted to buy was an America that more closely fitted their political point of view. So they poured money into that project. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Start Making Sense!, The Humorless Queers!, The Majority Report!, and Intercepted. Leonard Leo is currently on leave from the Federalist Society to help shepherd Gorsuch's nomination. In addition to nominating Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, President Trump has 123 other federal judgeships to fill because Senate Republicans blocked many of Obama's nominees. Eric Lipton, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, why don't you start off by um, talking about uh, the conservative shaping of the judiciary and particularly the role of the Federalist Society? Sure. You know, first off, I mean, you introduced them once point by describing them as a right-wing group. I wouldn't call the Federalist Society a right-wing group. I think that they are a group of conservative legal scholars who see themselves as an alternative voice. And they really got started through law schools in the United States, where there was some concern by law professors that there was not a, a forum for conservative people to sort of, you know, meet and discuss theories relative to the court that, that could sort of be an alternative to the more liberal dominant thought in, in the court system. But the Federalist Society has grown into an organization that has incredible influence in the United States. It is it has many lawyers who are lawyers for working for different corporations, and it has judges that are members, and it, it, it is has gatherings around the United States that pull together conservative legal minds, and it's funded by a combination of, of conservative foundations that are, you know, that want to try to change various standards in American society, as well as corporations that that like the ideas of the Federalist Society in, in terms of limited government, governing and tr and sort of trying to to knock down f certain federal regulations. So, what the thing that is, is sort of interesting at this moment is that is that the, the, the judicial philosophy of the Federalist Society and of groups that are related to it in the conservative world, they are better positioned at this moment than they probably have ever been in, in modern times, and because of a, a series of, of events that have occurred. You've got the president, who has essentially allowed them to help pick Supreme Court nominees and, and told them that he's going to also allow them to provide input to other judges. You've got a Congress that is controlled by Republicans. You have state governments throughout the United States, where the majority of the governors and legislatures are under Republican control. And you have more vacancies right now going into this new term for a president than you've had in, in any time going back to Carter. And also, you have more judges who are near retirement age than any time in decades. So we, President Trump and the Republicans are better positioned at this moment to reshape both the federal and state judiciaries than they probably have ever been. And the Federalist Society and, and Leonard Leo are sitting there ready to help that process. And can you talk about um, the foundations that are supporting the Federalist Society, like the Koch brothers, uh, like Mel uh, Richard Mellenscaife? 
Yes. I mean, they, you know, it, you got everything from Google and Microsoft, which are donors to the Federalist Society, and as well as major energy companies like Chevron or Devon, which are very, uh, you know, uh, especially Devon is, is trying to challenge much of the Obama administration's regulatory agenda when it comes to the environment. But then you have also a lot of very conservative uh, family foundations that, you know, like uh, the, the Mercer Foundation or, um, or uh, the, the Koch Brothers Foundation, that, that you see their giving, if you look at their, at their donor patterns, as a way to try to influence American society. And, uh, and, and clearly, I mean, you, the Federalist Society is a forum for these lawyers to discuss legal approaches that they can then use in, in, and to fine-tune them. And, and they, 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 the Federalist Society argues that it is a nonpartisan 501c3 that doesn't, you know, is not, a, is not an advocacy organization. But it's pretty clear that they have a very conservative legal philosophy when you, when you look at the, at the forums that they hold and the debates that they hold and, and the people that are, that are members of it. And, uh, and you look at the judges that they also align themselves with. And I mean, Leonard, Leonard, Leonard is a, is a, is a, is almost has a mythical status almost in, 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 in the legal circles in the United States. I mean, you come to an event in Washington that, that the Federalist Society puts on. Um, and that Leonard Leo is is helping organize, and you're you're likely to encounter, you know, at least when Judge Scalia was alive. I mean, Judge Scalia, Judge Thomas. I mean, he he is uh, he is very well respected among that circle, and uh, has a great deal of influence. And how did he get to have this uh, influence? Uh, uh, he's almost like the go-to guy. Uh, he also shepherded through apparently the confirmations of both Justice Roberts and uh, Justice Samuel Alito as well. How did he get to that uh, that position? I mean, the Federalist Society is essentially, I mean, if fraternity implies that it's male, but a, a fraternity, you know, could be, say, sorority of, of like-minded lawyers. Uh, it's a club. And, and so it's essentially a private club of like-minded lawyers, and be they judges or, or corporate lawyers or academic lawyers, and they, they have regular meetings and conferences. And, and Leonard Leo is sort of like the, you know, the, the head, the head counselor of this group. And they, they very well, he's a very respected guy. He's a very intelligent guy. He's also, and surprisingly for Washington, very low key. You don't hear his voice in the debates at all. You don't see him. You don't see him quoted. He's very much behind the scenes, but is, has a great deal of respect among this, this universe of folks. He really came to the prominence in, at first in, in, the, in George W. Bush's administration when he was named to serve as a, a, as a sort of intermediary for Catholics and the Republican Party. Uh, and he himself is Catholic and a very, you know, serious about his beliefs. And then during—he he transitioned from that role to early in the Bush administration, they had trouble getting through some Supreme Court nominees, and Harriet Myers was nominated and then backed out. And there was frustration among conservatives that Bush was not taking advantage of the power that he had to fill the federal courts. So uh, Leonard came in, and Leonard Leo, and, and he, helped, he helped set up a process to not only identify candidates that were conservative and, and, that, and that they could get confirmed, but also a process to then build public support across the United States to execute on those nominations once they were made. So that's when Judicial Crisis, or then called Judicial Confirmation Network, was created. 
Leonard Leo has always been associated with this group. He helps find the money. And they, they began a public relations campaign nationally to get the conservative judges confirmed once, you know, folks like Leonard had helped get them nominated. You begin your piece, Eric, the front page piece of the Sunday uh, New York Times. Um, by saying deep into the Senate's 68-page questionnaire of Judge Gorsuch, the Supreme Court nominee was asked to describe how he had come to President Trump's attention, and he said the first thing he wrote was, I was contacted by Leonard Leo. So, can you also talk, as you are now, talking about the allied organizations and those that Leonard Leo works with, like John Malcolm of the Heritage Foundation, Ann Corkery, the Washington lawyer who, along with her husband, oversees the Judicial Crisis Network, and you say related dark money groups that also support the cause? Yeah, I mean, I've, as a, as a reporter and as a person that believes in transparency, uh, and also likes someone that likes to kind of, you know, to decipher riddles. I find it really interesting to just observe this this kind of aligned parties and and the the various roles that they have set up. So you have, you know, the Federalist Society and Leonard that's playing a role in helping identify candidates to nominate and to, you know, bring them to the administration and to get the process started. And then you essentially have a handoff because he is a he is a 501c3, you know, he comes from that world where you're not advocates. Then you have this handoff to this group, the Judicial Crisis Network, which is an advocacy organization that's spending, you know, something upwards of $4 million on, on television commercials and radio and other media, particularly in the states where there are Senate Democrats who are up for re-election next year in states where Trump won. Okay, so these are Democrats that live in red states who are vulnerable, and, we're, and Gorsuch is going to need their votes in order to get confirmed, uh, because otherwise, unless, you know, the 60-vote rule is overturned uh, in order to get, you know, to prevent the block, uh, you know, he doesn't need it for a majority. He needs it to get, to get the vote to the floor. Uh, and so um, it, that's where Judicial Crisis Network comes in. This is an organization that uh, was set up in approximately 2005, and it's a dark money group. They will not tell you who their donors are. But when you look at their at their 990, which is their tax form, and I happen to conveniently have a copy here, um, and the thing that's so interesting about it to me is is that uh, uh, they you know they show that they had a budget of uh, in 2014 of 5.7 million, which isn't that much, but that's just one of many aligned organizations. And then you go to the page um, that shows who their donors are, and it's called the Schedule B of the 990. And uh, and if you ask for it, you can get it. Although if you look in the normal tax records, you won't find it. And you see that all of their money came from two donors, and, but although the, the names of the donors aren't there. So, you know, 5.75 million came from two people. And then you look at their 990 as well and say, okay, how many people do you have that work for you? How many volunteers do you have? Zero employees, zero volunteers. So, what, so you sort of wonder, well, what is this group? I mean, it has zero employees, zero volunteers. All of its money come from two donations. So how much is this really a grassroots organization or how much is it a, an organization that takes checks from players that want to influence the, the federal judiciary and, and then funnel the money through this organization to try to create an appearance that it's really a grassroots organization. And, and do that's you know something who that, those two people are? Well, if you reverse engineer the, the federal, uh, the IRS records, which I did, um, you could find, you could backwards, you could find this organization called the Wellspring Committee. Okay. So here's the interesting thing. The Wellspring Committee, which is also, it's based in Virginia, 
uh, is run, and her, the signed document, Wellspring, this is their 990, is Ann Corkery. Okay, so Ann Corkery is listed, signed here as the president of the Wellspring Committee. Okay, on the Judicial Crisis Network, this document, who signs it as a treasurer? Neil Corkery. That's her husband. Okay, so her husband helps run the Judicial Crisis Network. Ann Corkery runs Wellspring Committee. And then you look at the back of their schedule. Their, who, do they, who, does, who, they give, who does the Wellspring Committee give money to? Oh, so they gave $5.775 million to the Judicial Crisis Network in 2014. Wait a second. That's exactly the same amount of the money that the Judicial Crisis Network spent in, in 2014. So this, this Ann Corker gave all of the money to—and so then you wonder, okay, where does Wellspring get its money from? Well, then you begin this process because of the, you know, the federal, the federal government doesn't require disclosure of donors. You end up at a brick wall because you can't find out Wellspring, where Wellspring Committee gets its money from, and, and, you, and you end up in the dark money, you know, circle. But basically what you see is that this is an interconnected network that is moving money around in a way to try to hide who the original donors were, and that it's—and it's, it's, the, and the connections between the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network— and Ann Corkery, Neil Corkery, and Leonard Leo, and the connection between Judicial Crisis Network and the Wellspring Committee, they're all interconnected. And, and, and now, I mean, they have their—they certainly have the right to influence this process. I mean, it's a democracy. You raise money, you spend money. I just think it's interesting to bring light to this and to sort of this—to examine this network. And, and, you know, that's their right to, to do it, and they're doing it. The reclusive hedge fund billionaire who's the secret power behind Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Jane Mayer. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Great to be with you. Well, the reclusive hedge fund billionaire behind the Trump presidency is Robert Mercer. In The New Yorker this week, you have the first in-depth report on this mystery man and his daughter, Rebecca. That's Rebecca with a K. To do this story, you spoke with the Prince of Darkness himself, Stephen Bannon. What was that like? And what did he tell you about Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca? Well, I was really on, on the edge of my seat to see what, what Bannon was like and uh, pacing around and waiting for him to call. And finally he did. And, you know, he turns out to be quite engaging and a lot of fun to talk to. I mean, I guess this, we should have predicted this because really somebody who's gotten ahead the way he has has to have some pretty good skills. Anyway, he's a lot of fun to talk to. He's interesting. He He said about the Mercers that they had launched the Trump revolution and that they had more than any other donor in the last four years had the biggest impact of, of anyone in, in putting Trump in power. So wow. he was pretty out front about the whole thing. So you say Bannon was a lot of fun to talk to. Is Robert Mercer a lot of fun to talk to? 
Robert Mercer wouldn't speak with me, and and that's not unusual. He doesn't speak almost uh, to anyone. Um, He actually, I quote someone, uh, he said to a colleague at some point where he works at a a, uh, an incredibly lucrative hedge fund in Long Island, and he said that he prefers the company of cats to humans. <laughs> so, um, and he, so he's he's a, a very terse speaker when he speaks at all. You say he heads an incredibly lucrative hedge fund. Who exactly is Robert Mercer, and how rich is he? He is the co CEO um, with one other man of something called Renaissance Technologies. It's a hedge fund, as I said, in Long Island, and um, it's hard to know exactly how rich he is, but he is listed by institutional investor as making approximately $135 million a year, and that would have been true at least for the last 10 years or so. So he's getting up there in the billionaire category, I would think. But he's also a pretty big spender. For someone who never speaks and has this kind of austere exterior, he's been described as having the sort of the the personality of an icy cold poker player by the one person that did interview him, Sebastian Malaby, who wrote a book called um, More Money Than God about hedge funds. But anyway, for for someone like that, he has some pretty high-flying spending habits, even if he's not speaking. You, You get the feeling of is that Robert Mercer, who grew up quite middle class, hit it really big when he went to this hedge fund. And it wasn't until he was in his 40s. And it enabled him and his family to pretty much indulge any kind of material whim they had. And they, all of them, went off in different directions on incredible scales of shopping sprees. And one of the things that he wanted to buy and that his middle daughter, Rebecca, wanted to buy was an America that more closely fitted their political point of view. So they poured money into that project. Let's talk about that political project. You you say Robert Mercer basically never speaks. Nevertheless, you were able to find out quite a lot about his political ideas. I just want to ask you about a couple of these. What does Robert Mercer say about racism in the United States? This was the challenge, really, of doing this piece, cracking the code of who he is and what he believes in. And finally, I got lucky because one of the people who's worked in his firm for the last 20 years finally got angry at him for the way he's trying to influence American politics. And they had a big fight. And it's opened up a little bit of a glimpse into what Mercer really believes. And among the things that he believes are that white racism doesn't exist in America. He says there's only, there is no white racism. There's only black racism. And he says that the civil rights movement has made blacks less well off than before the civil rights movement. He thinks that the Civil Rights Act was one of the great mistakes in in modern American history. What does he say about the dangers of nuclear war? He got into an argument with somebody he worked with where in which he argued that Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and nuclear war in general were not as bad as people think. It's survivable, he argues, and not only that, but the radiation from it, he suggests, from the fallout is good for people. So he'd say, you know, while in the blast zone, it wasn't so great for the Japanese, he was arguing outside of the blast zone, he would claim it was great for the Japanese health, which is just um, a position that has been <laughs> there, there's no, there's just no scientific support from it, at least from 
conventional scientific authorities. I, I, I spoke to the National the Association for the Advancement of Science, and they said, no, there's, there, there is no such support for this. <laughs> they said no. <laughs> and, and you have a, a, let's call it a fascinating story about what he says about the value of cats. He, he has, according to his colleagues, a, a theory of humans, which is that they have no inherent value that a human being is only worth as much as they can earn. So he would argue, for instance, and has, that he earns, you know, two million times or thousands of times more than a school teacher. So that makes him that much more valuable. And that school teachers are, are marginally valuable. People on welfare, he suggests, have no value. They have negative value. And then he argues, though, that cats have value because they provide, watching them provides pleasure to people, unlike people. So um, it's a, it's a very, he, he's a, a brilliant, you know, we're sort of mocking him, but Bob Mercer is a brilliant computer scientist who figured out a way to use computers to kind of game the stock market and commodities markets worldwide and figure out how to build predictive models so that his firm would know where the markets are going and be able to trade on it in advance. And they've just plain minted money ever since that. So he's, he's brilliant at the things he's brilliant at, um, science and, and computer science and math. But he has really strange and almost absent human skills. I mean, people say that he can't look at you when you're in conversation with him. And it's painful for him, it seems, almost, to, to, to have to converse. So he's an odd mixture of things. Robert Mercer is reclusive, but his daughter, Rebecca, does not seem to be. You report that she lives in a $28 million apartment at Trump Place on Manhattan's Upper West Side. You report that she homeschools her children and that she's, quote, consumed by politics. You say Trump has embraced her in a big way. Why exactly is that? Well, um, because the Mercers embraced Trump in a big way. And it didn't happen until Ted Cruz um, fell apart as a candidate. First, they were backing Cruz. But when his campaign went down and many other conservatives were saying, we're not going to back Donald Trump, the, the Mercers leapt right on board with him. They look at him as a, you know, a vessel and not yeah. necessarily the best vessel, just the only one they could find because they just can't stand the Clintons. Um, and it's, it's beyond the normal level that, that some people have. Bob Mercer has told at least three people who I interviewed, and one of them's quoted about it on the record in the story, that he thinks that, that the Clintons are murderers. He thinks they've actually had their opponents killed. In a way, you can see similarities between him and Trump in that they both are susceptible to conspiracy theories and, and they, their information flow is from kind of dubious sources often. And, and the result are these opinions that are, you know, unconventional in the extreme. And Rebecca, let's talk about Rebecca, the, what should we call her? 
the public Mercer. Yeah, so she is really an activist and outspoken, at least within Republican circles. Again, she didn't give me an interview, and she doesn't give interviews either. The Mercers disdain the media um, and have tried to build up, build up their own. They, they, they are the principal owners of Breitbart News. So Rebecca is, um, she's hard driving. She is impatient. She's a graduate of Stanford. She's very bright, and she has a graduate degree from Stanford, too. Uh, she worked for a little while in her father's firm as a trader and then went on, got married to a, a partner on Wall Street who, and they had these four kids that she homeschools now. But at any rate, she helped pour a lot of money, family money, into backing Romney in 2012. And when he didn't win, she was said to be incensed and kind of took matters into her own hands, turned on sort of the political consultants and the pollsters and decided that they didn't know what they were doing and that she would build up her own operation. And that's when the Mercers really stepped up and started becoming a force in American politics. So this is an important uh, element of your story. The Mercers fund candidates, but that's not the only part of their political spending. The other part is equally significant. What should we call it? The organizational and ideological apparatus. Let, let's talk about that. Since 2008, between 2008 and 2016, they put $77 million into American politics. And a lot of that went into building up a few organizations. One, they put $10 million into Breitbart News, which became a force on the right of sort of this economic nationalism of the type that, that, that Bannon has been pushing um, and that, that Trump's been pushing. And it's, it's also been very closely associated with the alt-right and kind of tips over every now and then into kind of white supremacism and anti-Semitism and some of the other pretty unpleasant isms. Then they also built up their own data company. It's a political data analytics company called Cambridge Analytica, which is kind of like a propaganda machine almost. It, it, it claims to have a tremendous amount of information on American voters, something like 2,000 points of data on 220 million individual Americans. And with that data, it's able to send out social media messages that are sort of targeted to people to try to push them politically in, in a direction. And then they built up, among the other things that's been very important in the last campaign, they founded an organization called the Government Accountability Institute. And it produced the book Clinton Cash, which really went a long ways towards defining Hillary Clinton as corrupt. So it was the, the, the playbook, in a way, for how Trump and the other Republicans took on Hillary Clinton came out of that that book and, and, and that organization, which was funded by the Mercers. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business.
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. continue our conversation with Jane Mayer, staff writer at The New Yorker. Her latest piece is headlined, The Reclusive Hedge Fund Tycoon Behind the Trump Presidency, How Robert Mercer Exploited America's Populist Insurgency. The piece looks at how the secretive billionaire reshaped the political landscape. One of the companies heavily funded by Robert Mercer is Cambridge Analytica, which claims it has psychological profiles of over 200 million American voters. The firm was hired by the Trump campaign to help it target its message to potential voters. Steve Bannon even served on the company's board. This is Cambridge Analytica's CEO, Alexander Nix, speaking earlier this year. We started to look at issue models, predicting which issues, social and political, appeal to which members of the target audience, which voters. We actually assigned different issues to every adult in the entire United States. We could then take these models and put them into a matrix, a little bit like the dental health example, where we can categorize people or segment them according to how they're likely to behave. Core Trump supporters, top right, may be uh, more susceptible to a donation solicitation. Get out the vote, people who are going to vote Republican, but they need persuading to do so. Persuasion audiences, people who need shifting a little bit from the center towards the right. Once we've identified a segment, we can then sub-segment them by the issues that are most relevant to them and then start to target them with specific messages. Cambridge Analytica CEO Alexander Nix. Um, so Cambridge Analytica has claims to have psychological profiles of over 200 million American voters. Jane Mayer, tell us its significance. Steve Bannon was on its board, funded by the Mercers. Well, again, this is part of if you look at the history, what happened was after 2012, when, when Obama was reelected, despite the fact that the Mercers had put millions of dollars into trying to defeat him, they were upset and they wanted to try to get better political tools with more traction. So they put money into Breitbart, they put money into the Government Accountability Institute, and the third prong was Cambridge Analytica. It was, at that point, um, they concluded, and so did many others, that, that the Republican Party's data analytics for, for running campaigns were lagging behind those that the Democrats had. The Democrats—Obama had a famously good sort of computer operation um, and, um, and, and data team. And so they tried to—they decided, we'll run our own. They bought a company. They basically invested heavily in building, and it's an offshoot of an existing English company called Strategic Communication Laboratories. And the, the British company had been involved in uh, psychological warfare 
operations for uh, militaries and international elections and um, kind of some some pretty interesting and sneaky seeming things, um, which raised a lot of eyebrows when when its offshoot was purchased, basically uh, created by this one hedge fund family. Um, you know, when I looked into this, it's, it, it seemed that there was uh, less than meets the eye in many ways so far. Um, the uh, Alexander Nix, who is running Cambridge Analytica, um, is a great salesman, and he's got this pitch that makes it sound like something from, you know, the movie The Matrix or something, that, that they're going to be, you know, conducting psychological warfare with this propaganda machine in this country. The truth is, during the Trump campaign, they never used any of their, their so-called, you know, secret psychometric methods. They um, simply performed like any other kind of data analytics company, and, and the stuff they did was, was, was no different from what the Democrats do and, and, and other campaigns do. Um, you know, maybe at some point they'll have some superpowers that have yet to be revealed, but J they, they aren't there yet. I was just reading Jane Meyer's new profile in The New Yorker of Robert Mercer, who's, of course, the billionaire backer of the Trump campaign, um, someone who I think Steve Bannon said, without whom the Trump would not be the president. He's connected to a firm that Steve Bannon is also connected to, which is called Cambridge Analytica, which is um, basically a data, data broker firm that works for politicians, people running for office. They boast at this company of having detailed personal profiles on more than 200 million Americans. So these companies that uh, aggregate information and buy large data sets about individuals are going to seek out Comcast and Time Warner and pay, you know, however much it costs to buy your entire internet history. This is going to make manipulating elections way easier. Um, the possibilities are really very frightening. Also, of course, law enforcement, immigration, customs, credit reporting agencies, and your boss will also be able to buy this data. Um, so, you know, you say that you're homesick, your boss buys information about you showing that in fact, you were watching Netflix all day. Um, you couldn't have been that sick if you weren't asleep, et cetera, et cetera. So what can people do? You can do two things. First of all, you can protect your own privacy immediately by using Tor. Um, or a VPN, a uh, virtual private network, which will shield your internet history from your ISP. So they will only see the IP address of your VPN provider. They will see nothing else about what you do on the internet. And there are some internet routers actually that run all traffic through a VPN so that no matter what device you're connecting to, um, the internet from, whether it's your phone or your iPad or your laptop or your desktop or whatever, um, even your Roku, all of that traffic will go through a VPN. You can also, and you must also use the free browser extension, HTTPS everywhere, which is something that, uh, the electronic frontier foundation developed. It is free. It works on Chrome and Firefox, and it makes sure that every single website that has encrypted, um, that, that uses encryption and has encryption enabled 
is a way it means that you'll always connect in an encrypted fashion to those websites, um, which is important because then if you do that, the ISP will only be able to see that you accessed, for example, newyorktimes.com. It will not be able to see what you read on newyorktimes.com, what specific article. Don't let them mold your mind. They want to control mankind. Seems like their only intention is to exploit the earth. Trust in their deceit, your mind causes your defeat, and so you become an invention to distort the search. Propaganda and lies is a plague in our lives. How much more victimized before we realize? So we've heard a lot less, uh, Vicky, of the Mercers than we have, I guess, some other Republican stalwarts. Uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, makes a little cameo in your piece. Uh, of course, the Koch brothers. Uh, there are others. Right. But uh, g- give us a sense of, of when we talk about the Mercers, who are we talking about specifically from that family and, and how long have they been this involved in Republican slash conservative politics, I guess, slash media. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, people outside of the Republican world, the name Mercer is it, 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 very new, right? We've all heard of the Cokes and Sheldon Eagleson. You know, they've been around Republican politics for a long time. The Mercers, um, uh, Matter in this context that the, the two Mercers who matter are Robert Mercer, the 70 year old um, former computer scientist who, in his 50s, um, uh, became a very, very, very wealthy and successful uh, hedge fund uh, financier at a, at a place called Renaissance Technologies, which is known for being a very sort of anti establishment hedge funds, and they typically don't recruit from Wall Street. They want different kinds of brains, and they, they, they've had extraordinarily good returns, and um, the sort of the algorithms and the data, you know, the, how, how they use data is all kept very secret. Um, and it, it's, it's um, quite a mysterious place. He's the one who has all the money. He then has uh, a wife and three daughters, and the middle daughter, Rebecca Mercer, who's 43 years old and, and very tall um, and sort of striking looking, is um, much more articulate than her father, who is famously sort of reclusive. He much prefers talking to cats than to humans. And um, he has uh, long held very, very right-wing views. Um, he, you know, he's told people at uh, inside this hedge fund that he really believes that, you know, people who don't earn very much money, you know, uh, don't, you know, he doesn't sort of see them as worthwhile people. They don't add anything to society. Um, uh, they're a kind of negative. Um, and, um, and I think nobody who heard these views thought yeah, sort of took them seriously mm. until 
2010, and in January 2010, um, the Citizens United decision gets passed, um, which, of course, changes the political landscape completely because it means that individuals are now allowed to, you know, have, they can spend un- unlimited amounts of money uh, on candidates and um, political think tanks and causes. And um, Bob Murphy uses, you know, and this is when Rebecca, the middle daughter, who's, uh, you know, I think got three or four degrees from Stanford and, and for spent a few years trading at her father's firm, but she's basically a housewife living in New York with who she homeschools her four children. So she has the time on her hands. Um, you know, but they started to attend um, the Freedom Summits uh, put together by the Cokes, who back then were the sort of linchpin of all these conservative um, me- mega-donors. Um, but I think they began Rebecca, um, who who is the talker of the two, um, felt increasingly frustrated that they were not sufficiently tough uh, mm. on trade and immigration. She also felt very annoyed that sort of she wasn't being listened to, and uh, she really started to make a name for herself when Mitt Romney lost in 2012. All right, Vicky, well, let me start, she, stop you there. Vicky, let me just stop you there yeah. um, and, and, and back up just a little bit because, I mean, it's interesting. So we have this reclusive guy who uh, clearly does not sound like he's the type of person to set up some broad-based network, but when the shackles come off where your own personal wealth is really all you need to sort of qualify right. as a political player, uh, he begins to blossom, and he does this through his his uh, daughter, Rebecca, who seems to function as his surrogate in some way. Um, but do we have a sense of, of I mean, where do they come from? Are they from New York? Do they live in New York City? Um, where did uh, w- what do we know about um, uh, Robert Mercer's uh, childhood or where he came from? I mean, because clearly these guys are. Um, are movement conservatives, and they end up, um, I guess, around this time in 2010, do, um, donating is probably the wrong word, or perhaps it's not, investing in Breitbart, which I am particularly right, interested no, in. 2011. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I'm, so that's, I'm particularly, start, let me just. Yeah, they start to see what their money can do. Yeah, and then they start to invest in these platforms. Breitbart was the first with the media platform, and then, well, you know, they they buy the data analytics company to see if how did that they, will make a difference. How did they so, choose Breitbart? Vicky, how did they, Vicky, how did they choose yeah. Breitbart? I mean, I asked this because I, at that time, followed Breitbart, the site and the man, quite closely, and that site was not making any money. And I remember when no. that. Uh, when that um, that secret, essentially, investment came in, I mean, I've looked at the filings uh, over the years, and it was unclear where this money came in, but it came in in one big lump sum, uh, and he was ready to revamp the whole thing right before he died. Um, but why, right. w- how did they ch- just decide Breitbart? Was it just simply his politics? Because the interesting thing about Breitbart is, at that time, 
Breitbart was not at all interested, it seemed to me, in policy as much as he was sort of a cultural aggrievement. Culture. That's exactly exactly, Sam. You're exactly right. And this is where you've hit hit the nail on the head. So that's exactly right. Andrew Breitbart was was interested in, in changing the culture. He wanted, you know, he was as um, obsessed with changing Hollywood as he was with everyone, you know, everything else. And I think that was, that's, so, so right there, that's what makes the Mercers, you asked me at the beginning, what makes the Mercers different, okay? It's because they really want to blow up the entire system of mm. American politics um, so that Americans, in their view, can regain its cultural roots, which they believe it has completely lost. They are terrified that America is becoming dangerously close to a sort of socialist Europe. And the America they, you know, they, they want restored is, the, you know, sort of competition, enterprise, and um, they believe that the only sort of way, having you know watched the Mitt, the Mitt Romney campaign uh, lose, they you know I think they believe that there's going to be a multi-pronged attack. Breitbart is one way to really hit the culture, okay? And and after Andrew died, one of the reasons they then really trusted Steve Bannon who took it over was that, you know, Steve Bannon is a former uh, Goldman Sachs banker. Mm. And he did um, really, uh, you, you know, help, help write that ship financially. I mean, obviously he had their money, but it was, it, it was a bit of a, you know, I, I think it was much more precarious when Andrew was, was alive. He also, um, you know, I mean, Steve Bannon, as we know, is this, um, extraordinarily populist, and um, he he you know so he created it into a vehicle with a much more populist, widespread um, appeal. So that was that was right up what the Mercers um, wanted to do. At a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. 
When they first met, the Mercers, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, first met Andrew Breitbart, and uh, what that progression was, and how they came to be linked up with um, with Bannon. Well, sh sure. Um, the, the 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 Mercer family, um, Robert and his daughter Rebecca, um, met Andrew Breitbart back. I think it was late uh, 2011 or early 2012, speaking at a uh, conference of the Club for Growth, another right-wing group, and they were completely taken with Andrew Breitbart. He was a um, pretty much the opposite kind of character from Bob Mercer. He at Breitbart. Um, was outspoken and gleefully provocative and loved to offend people and use vulgar language just to catch their attention. And you've got this kind of tight-lipped um, hedge fund man from the far right who just fell for Breitbart big time. And he mostly what he was captivated by, I think, was Breitbart's vision, which was, we're going to—he we, said, conservatives can never win until we— um, basically take on the mainstream media and build up our own source of, of information. He was talking about declaring information warfare in this country um, on fact-based reporting and, and substituting it with their own vision. And, um, and what he needed— Breitbart at that point was money. He needed money to set up Breitbart News, which was only just sort of a, a couple of bloggers at that point. And talk about Breitbart News, uh, about uh, what the alt-right represented, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism or white supremacy, and why they were attracted to this. Well, I mean, you know, it, it changed. What happened was—I mean, it, it started as a— um, Breitbart—Andrew Bright, Breitbart had helped The Huffington Post get set up, and his idea was that he was going to launch The Huffington Post of the Right. Um, and and um, and so he was setting it up, and um, his his very close friend was Steve Bannon, and Bannon had been in investment banking. So Bannon got the Mercers to put ten million dollars into turning this uh, venture into something that was really going to pack a punch, um, and 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 they were just about to launch it in a big day, they, a big way. They were a few days away from it when Andrew Breitbart died. Um, that was in March of 2012. He was only 43, and he had a sudden massive heart attack. And so this this operation was just about to go big. Um, it was leaderless, and that's when Steve Bannon stepped in and became the head of Breitbart News. And in Bannon's hands, it became a force of uh, economic nationalism and, in some people's view, white supremacism. It ran, um, a, a, you know, a, a regular feature on black crime. It um, it hosted and, and pretty much launched the career of Milo Yiannopoulos, who's sort of infamous for his kind of juvenile attacks on on women and, and uh, immigrants and God knows what. You know, just it, it became a— um, as Bannon had said, a platform for the alt-right, meaning the alternative to the old right, a new right that was far more angry and um, aggressive about others, people who were not just kind of the, the, the white uh, sort of conservatives like themselves. So they made a $10 million investment in Breitbart. They owned it, co-owned it. 
they they became the sponsors really behind it. And 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 it's interesting to me that one of the things I learned was that Rebecca Mercer, um, this heiress, who's had no experience in politics, is so immersed in in running Breitbart News at this point. I mean, she her family is the money big money behind it. That she she reads every story I'm told. And and fly specs, you know, typos and um, you know, grammar and all that kind of thing. I mean, th th there there is a force behind Breitbart News that people don't realize, and it's the Mercer family. Um, so um, anyway, it became very important, increasingly on the fringe of of conservative politics because it pushed the conservatives um, in this country. Towards this this economic nationalism, nativism, anti-immigration, pro you know harsh borders, um, anti-free trade, um, protectionist, and it spoke the language of populism, but right-wing populism. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That was how Richard Nixon announced that he would visit the People's Republic of China in 1972. And Nixon did go to China. He went along with Henry Kissinger. And Nixon held his historic meetings with Chairman Mao Zedong. China is ripping us off. You know who's getting the oil? China. What China is doing to us is horrible. This week, Nixon's heir apparent, or heir apparent, Donald Trump, is meeting with the current leader of China, President Xi Jinping. Now, this historic meeting is not taking place in China. It's taking place at Trump's Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago. We understand that President Xi does not golf, so the visit could pose some issues for Donald Trump. Now, when Richard Nixon set up his meeting for uh, China and to meet with the leader of, of China, he used his emissary, Henry Kissinger, to lay the groundwork for that trip. Donald Trump also has his own emissaries, people like Steve Bannon and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Last December, Bannon, Kushner, and General Mike Flynn, who you'll remember was briefly Trump's national security advisor, they had a secret meeting with the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al Nayyan, in New York City. And that's according to the Washington Post. What they discussed in that meeting, we don't know. But then the story gets really interesting. A few weeks after that meeting in New York involving Bannon and Kushner and General Flynn and the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, the Sheikh helped set up a meeting in the Seychelles Islands for an unofficial emissary of then-president-elect Donald Trump. And that unofficial shadow emissary was none other than the notorious mercenary and founder of Blackwater, Eric Prince. Now, according to the Washington Post, that meeting uh, was in part intended to 
put Eric Prince in the presence of Russian officials. And the meetings were supposedly, according to the Post, a way that a back channel could be set up for communications between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Now, I reported in January for The Intercept that Eric Prince had been a secret advisor to the Trump administration. Now, of course, Prince and his family were major bankrollers of the Trump campaign. Prince's sister, Betsy DeVos, is the education secretary. And to flesh out this whole situation of Donald Trump's secret little prince, I'm joined now by the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, Betsy Reed. Betsy, welcome back to Intercepted. Hey, Jeremy. Now, the reason, Betsy, that I wanted to discuss this with you is that you and I have worked on the Blackwater Eric Prince story going back to 2005 when you were my editor at The Nation magazine, and you also edited my book, Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army. So you and I have been immersed in this story for many, many years. What was your reaction when you saw that Eric Prince, that, that the Washington Post reported that Eric Prince had been involved with a back-channel meeting in the Seychelles involving the United Arab Emirates brokering a meeting between Eric Prince as a kind of emissary unofficial for Donald Trump and Russian officials. Well, I mean, on one level, it's shocking, right? Because this is a man who's like so notorious and so dis discredited and has been at the center of so many horrifying scandals that he could be playing this role. And again, you know, at the center of the news, it's just it's kind of amazing, right? But, you know, as you essentially predicted it, you wrote the piece um, about how Eric Prince was advising Donald Trump from the shadows. And, you know, you've also written about Mike Pence and how ideologically it actually is not surprising at all to find Eric Prince right at the center of the, uh, the Trump administration, given his sort of similar Christian supremacist worldview. So for people who don't know who Eric Prince is, how would you sum that up? Well, I mean, he was the the, the son of a, a billionaire and he inherited a huge amount of money. Uh, his family was a very powerful right-wing uh, Christian uh, financier of very extreme right-wing political figures and movements in the United States. And he served, uh, unlike a lot of children of billionaires, he, he enlisted in the U.S. military and served uh, as a Navy SEAL in Haiti and Bosnia and elsewhere. And when his father died uh, and his, his first wife was dying of cancer, Prince left the Navy SEALs, went home helped settle the family, the selling of the family business. He took his share of the inheritance and bought a huge plot of land in the Great Dismal Swamp of North Carolina and started what became known as Blackwater Security and Training. And in the late 1990s, when Blackwater was created, uh, this was pre-9-11, the main business model of Blackwater was not to provide mercenaries. It was to provide training for the U.S. military, but also training for law enforcement that were going to face down against the violent youth of America's schools. The Columbine Massacre had just happened, and Eric Prince came up with this idea to build a mock high school in his swampland called Are You Ready High? Like the letter R, the letter U, Are You Ready High? And the idea was to train SWAT-type forces to deal with school shootings. 9-11 happens, and Eric Prince was interviewed on Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News, and he says to Bill O'Reilly that, you know, before 9-11, people didn't really get what he was about, and now his phone is ringing off the hook. And, and what basically happened is that a very powerful figure in the CIA at the time named Buzzy Krongard was friends with the Prince family, and he would take his kids to Eric Prince's uh, Blackwater to help to let them like shoot on his range. Buzzy Krongard and Eric Prince made a deal that Prince would recruit a network of former Navy SEALs and other special operatives 
uh, that could provide a kind of deniable force for the CIA in the early stages of the war in Afghanistan. And Eric Prince actually deployed with his initial team uh, in a small village on the Afghan-Pakistan border called Shkin, and they set up a, an outpost that they called the Alamo. And basically, that was the beginning of the gold rush for Blackwater providing covert services to the CIA and later overt services to the U.S. State Department. I mean, he's long identified as a libertarian, right? So he believes that government functions should be outsourced. And he has used that model in the realm of security and um, military operations in order to create these forces that then operate w- with impunity, with without the accountability that is forced on government forces. Is that right? right? E- exactly. And li- libertarian in the sense, I mean, there is one interesting thing. Eric Prince has spoken very critically of Barack Obama's uh, drone strike killing of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki. And it's not that Eric Prince has any you know, admiration or support for al-Awlaki, but the idea that the president of the United States was ordering the assassination of uh, an American citizen who hadn't been charged with a crime. I-, I wonder if it had been Bush or Cheney, if Prince would have taken that position. But he did take that position, which sounded very similar to that of Ron Paul when he was running his insurgency campaigns. But Blackwater itself was involved in secret assassinations. Uh, of course. Yeah, and they and their men were accused in court documents from whistleblowers in the company uh, of, of doing night hunting in Iraq where they were randomly killing Iraqis. And uh, whistleblowers in the company said that Eric Prince set an overt agenda of Christian supremacy, that this was a war of civilization and that uh, essentially all Muslims were, were fair game. So, you know, he, he supported Pat Buchanan's insurgency campaign against George W. Bush in, in 1992 in the election uh, in, the, in the Republican primary because he said that the Bush administration was too liberal on social issues, you know, like gay marriage and et cetera. He was an intern in George H.W. Bush's White House. But, you know, the, the essence of, of Eric Prince's elevator pitch to the national security apparatus is, I want to do for you what FedEx does for the delivery of packages and mail in this country. It's much more effective than the post office. And let's run the CIA and the military more like FedEx rather than the post office. And key to that is secrecy, right? Is is the ability to operate in the shadows as he's tried to do in, in his relationships with Trump. Right. And, and, and this is classic Eric Prince where Part of privatization means that you are and layering things in subcontracts and outsourcing parts of it to this person, this company or that individual uh, is that it makes it very difficult for congressional oversight bodies to actually know who the hell is doing what uh, and for how much money. And we saw that repeatedly in the investigations of Blackwater and, and Halliburton and KBR. It's like, who holds the actual contract and who are we hiring to do this stuff? That was part of the worldview that Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld their careers were defined by the idea that the executive branch of government, particularly when Republicans are in power, should operate as an effective dictatorship over national security policy. And Congress should only play the role of financing what the president determines to be necessary. I mean, can you believe he's back, Jeremy? I mean, he's, he's sort of like your white whale. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, uh, you know, it never ceases to amaze me how often this guy pops up and you know, the fact that his sister is the education secretary, I think is only relevant in the sense that they share the same kind of ideological view she wants to do for education, what Eric Prince wants to do uh, for the military, and the fact that they're, they pour huge sums of money uh, into these campaigns, including the Trump campaign. But Eric Prince is a very brilliant, uh, an evil sort of genius, very forward thinking. And at times, he has sort of talked about how 
leftists and the Democrats in Congress, you know, ruined Blackwater. You know, the anti-war left went after the troops in Vietnam. This time it was easy to go after contractors. The kind of work we did, my family background, all the rest made it a very easy target. And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't come along. And it's almost like a Scooby-Doo type thing where it's like I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those, you know, rascally kids. Um but the guy, you know, has has uh, an incredible ability to survive. I mean, it, it, you know, if the apocalypse comes, uh, which they all think it will, uh, I think we're going to have Radio Shack, Cockroaches, and Eric Prince. They'll all somehow survive the apocalypse. We just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the story of the money behind the push to get Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Start Making Sense broke down some of Robert Mercer's bizarre behaviors. Democracy Now! discussed Cambridge Analytica, owned by Mercer. Humorless Queers gave some tips on maintaining a semblance of privacy on the internet. The Majority Report explored how and why Breitbart News is also owned by Mercer. Democracy Now! looked at what Breitbart became under the control of Mercer and Bannon. And finally, we just heard Intercepted look into the military-industrial oligarch from Blackwater, from the Bush era, risen again, Eric Prince. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Dan from the Cleveland area. I was calling in response to David's voicemail on the last episode. Hey, Jay. It's David Suggs. I'm actually a uh, conservative about healthcare. The main thing for me is, is the healthcare thing. And if you have a right to somebody else's labor, that seems to be very similar to slavery. I actually interpreted his question a little bit differently than, than you did, I think, and partially because I've had conversations with some of my libertarian friends about this exact thing. The way that I interpreted his question was that we don't have a right to healthcare in the sense, or we don't have a right to the labor of doctors in the sense that you know, we can't require them to care for us, which if that's what he means, and I, I know for a fact that my libertarian friends meant, meant it this way, I just don't understand that line of reasoning at all. And a couple of simple examples come to mind in cops and teachers. By David's logic, it seems like if you're being assaulted, then you don't have the right of a cop to step in and protect you, even though I feel like most people would agree that it's a cop's duty to do so. I'm a teacher, and I feel like my students definitely have a right to my labor. And maybe I fundamentally misunderstand something about this conversation. I, I don't feel like I do, but maybe I'm missing something. And, and if I'm actually wrong and David's right, I just see a lot of very terrible consequences from that basic principle, the idea that we don't have the right to other people's labor. So I don't know. Maybe I'm in, misinterpreting it. I obviously agree with everything that you said anyway, so I was just curious what maybe other people thought and if David had a response, because I haven't heard a compelling counter-argument to, to my reasoning yet. So anyway, keep up the good work, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And to Dan, who we just heard from in that uh, voicemail, I totally agree, actually. I think you're right, and I was wrong. I think you interpreted uh, David's question better than I did. And, um, you know, maybe he'll call in and, and clarify, but I had completely forgotten about that angle. And so you just reminded me of it. And, and, but as soon as you said it, I had a flashback to when, you know, I guess the first time I heard it, probably the first time a lot of people heard it was when Rand Paul said it and it made news, at least in the progressive media. So a quick Google later, and I found this clip from the Young Turks from five years ago. So here's Jenk's take on this concept of universal health co- coverage being a human right equating to slavery. Rand Paul, of course, senator from Kentucky. They're having a, a subcommittee meeting in the Senate. Uh, it's for primary health and aging. And he's going to decide that he's got a, a, a brilliant theory about uh, the health care plan that the Democrats passed, and he's got a great analogy for it. Listen to this moron talk about it. With regard to the idea of whether or not you have a right to a health care, you have to realize what that implies. It's not an abstraction. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. It means that you're going to enslave not only me, but the janitor at my hospital, the person who cleans my office, the assistants who work in my office, the nurses, if you have a right to their services, basically once you imply a belief in a right to someone's services, do you have a right to plumbing? Do you have a right to water? Do you have a right to food? You're basically saying that you believe in slavery. You're saying you believe in taking and extracting from another person. Our founding documents were very clear about this. You have a right to pursue happiness, but there's no guarantee of physical comfort. There's no guarantee of concrete items. In order to give something concrete or someone's surface, you got to take it from someone. So there's an implied threat of force. If I'm a physician in your community and you say you have a right to health care, do you have a right to beat down my door with the police, escort me away, and force me to take care of you? That's ultimately what the right to free health care would be. If you believe in a right to health care, you're believing in basically the use of force to conscript someone to do your bidding. All right, so let me regulate on this moron who thinks he's an intellectual, like, he, you know, oh, uh, I've read Ayn Rand. <laughs> do you know what the fountainhead says? Listen, you moron, that's not how it works. You, you say, oh, because you have a right to something, that means anyone you have that right from, in this absurd analogy, is a slave. Well, we have a right to make sure that our life and property are protected, as he himself uh, mentioned there. So does that mean the cops are our slaves? That we go over the cops and the firemen and we say, you are my slave, I conscript you. No, we have a right to it. So we pay people who volunteer to be cops and firemen, by, by volunteer meaning they have voluntarily joined that profession and they do that job. Nobody's making them, they're not slaves. Nobody made you a doctor. Nobody says you have to take this patient or that patient. Okay, for example, here's another one. You have a right to a lawyer. Okay, if you're charged criminally, you have a right to a lawyer. Does that mean all lawyers are slaves? No. There are some lawyers that choose to be defense lawyers that are, you know, do public defense as an example. 
They're not slaves. We have that right. Doesn't mean I have constricted you. I've taken that right from someone and given it to someone else. Ayn Rand told me we should never let anybody uh, take any of our money. We should just hoard it all. We should hoard it all and we should be individualistic and we should never work in a community together. He's a child. He thinks he's so smart, a pseudo-intellectual. Oh, let me tell you about slavery. What do you know about slavery, Rand Paul? What do you know? I mean, other than the fact that it is grotesquely offensive, do you know what happened in slavery? Do you know what happened? And you're going to come and talk to me about how you're a rich doctor, but you're a slave? Please. But put aside the offensiveness. It makes no sense. And he's so proud of himself, so smug. Now, it's possible that this is the story I had in the back of my subconscious somewhere when I started talking in the in the previous episode, when I was answering David the first time, and, and made what I thought was the absurd point that I wouldn't, as a matter of policy, enslave doctors and force them to work for free, but of course, leave it up to a real libertarian, Rand Paul, to make that absurd point unironically. Now... What I would say, if I were to sort of echo Jank, but in a calmer way, as is my style, what I would emphasize is that when people say that healthcare should be a right, and if anyone says healthcare should be free, no one means that literally. It's not literally free. It means no out-of-pocket expenses at the time of service. It means you should have the right to access a system of healthcare regardless of your ability to pay. So that means a system of doctors and nurses and hospitals and technicians and everyone else involved that you have the right to access that is paid for with tax dollars. That means that everyone involved all along the chain is getting compensated for their labor. Universal healthcare does not conjure even a whiff of anything similar to slavery or owning someone else's labor. It just doesn't. And if anyone makes that argument, I cannot help but question either their intelligence or grasp on the concept. Maybe it's just ignorance or, to echo a point I made in the previous episode, they may be intentionally trying to deceive you using intentionally inflammatory language in order to rile up public opinion against the policies they ideologically oppose. I didn't think we'd have to come back to this one, but I'm always happy to explain why pretty much any given government policy isn't equatable to slavery. So we covered taxation not being slavery in the last episode. Uh, we did a better job of explaining why healthcare isn't slavery in this episode. If you have any other uh, government policies you want me to explain why they're not slavery, send them to me. Uh, the only one that I would leave in as, a, as an exception is our incarceration system based on the 13th Amendment, which literally says that slavery is allowed if it's a punishment for a crime. So that pretty much arguably is slavery. So if you want to get upset about slavery, uh, that's where I would put your focus. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details 
details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder